as we were going through all of my mother's things, I went into the tool closet. That was really one of my mother's domains. And on top of it, I saw this nondescript box, but I had a sense that there was something significant there. I called my sister over and inside we found this whole world of dad that we didn't even know had existed. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome back to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. And today we are talking about part two of The Unbroken Horizon a brand new novel by Jenny Brav, a fellow author, which has just about released. Very, very exciting. This is Jenny's first book, and I am thrilled to talk with her about her own experience, her own real-life experience that informed the story. Hi, Jenny. Welcome back to The True Fiction Project. Hi, Renita. Thank you. It's so good to be back. Great to have you back. I feel like we just about scratched the surface, if that, in the last episode, (laughs) (laughs) talking about your book. Yes, and all that informed it. So right at the end of our last conversation, you had touched on the emotional trauma of your character, Sarah. And her childhood wounds, one of those stemming from the untimely death of her father. Now, I know that you went through a similar experience. You sent me a beautiful essay describing this recently. It's called The Dad Box. Mm -hmm. And I was really intrigued by the fact that you had a dad box and Sarah also had a dad box. Is that right? Indeed. Yeah. So what's a dad box? Well, for me, it was this discovery. So as I said in the last episode, my father passed when I was eight of a sudden heart attack. And my sister and I were the ones to find him. My mother was gone at the time. And it really split my childhood in two, both, you know, having a dad and not, but also the grief that my mother went through and her struggles as a single mom And so it felt in some ways like I lost my mother as well a little bit. And although she was there and present and it left this big hole in my life, I didn't know anybody in his family. I knew he had two brothers, but one had passed and the other one he was estranged from and his parents had died when he was young. So it was like this big mystery in my life. And, you know, like one half of my lineage, I knew nothing about. And when I was in Nepal doing the research for the Fulbright that I was describing last time, my mother passed suddenly of a heart attack as well. So 17 years later, and I was in Nepal at the time, I was 25, my sister, Laura, 
who's older. She was in Peru with Doctors Without Borders. And so we both went to Paris in a rented apartment, had like a month, maybe even less to go through all the stuff while we were in shock and grieving. We had to make decisions about what to keep, what to store since neither of us really had a fixed place. At least I didn't at the time. And as we were going through all of my mother's things, I went into the tool closet. That was really one of my mother's domains. And on top of it, I saw this nondescript box, but I had a sense that there was something significant there. I called my sister over and inside we found this whole world of dad that we didn't even know had existed. We grew up in Paris. The apartment where we were was in Paris. That's where he met my mom. And he moved to Paris in the late 50s to be a writer. But by the time we were born, he'd kind of put that dream aside and was he and my mother were a team of movie translators. They wrote the subtitles and doubling dialogues for movies, and that's how they'd met. So we didn't really know about mm -hmm. this aspect of his history. So inside this box were all these unfinished manuscripts of screenplays. He wanted to be a playwright and seven bound flimsy notebooks that were his journals from 1948 to 1968. So spanning 20 years. And our parents were older when they had us. And my father in particular, he was almost 50 by the time I was born. He had always been a confirmed bachelor or writer, bohemian lifestyle. And then eventually when that didn't work out, he gave that up, married my mom, had us. So yeah, discovering this whole world and later wasn't immediate because we were both doing international work. But later, when I was a little more settled, I, it launched me on this whole journey to discover more about him, to discover more about his that side of my lineage. So yeah, that was the dad box. The <laughs> it was dad a, a huge box. thing. Yeah, absolutely. And what I find amazing is that your dad box led you to explore your relatives through Ancestry.com. And Sarah did the same thing. And she found Evelyn, her cousin. Was the discovery of the contents of the various dad boxes impetus to go to the DNA sites, Ancestry.com, to look for relatives? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd known very little about my father's family and his parents because he died when I was so young. My mother didn't know that much. And I'd always been curious, but really in a lot of my childhood, there wasn't access to internet. I was growing up in the 80s. And so when I saw his journals, and it was really when I was, it was a time when I was living in Italy with my partner at the time. And when I was on break from doing the humanitarian work, so I would have some time in Italy and then go to Nepal with the UN. And I was really feeling like I was at a crossroads, like there were these parts of my history that were missing. And so 
Yeah, I delved into the contents of the box, especially I did read through some of his manuscripts, but that felt more overwhelming and like not knowing what to do with all these unfinished ideas he had. But those journals, I mean, they have yellow post-it notes all over them. They were already kind of crumbling because they're very old at this point. I still have this stack of seven spiral notebooks. Some of them are losing the cover. And it really gave me insight into him, into his desire to be a writer, into the wounds that he carried from World War II and fighting in World War II that interrupted his college studies and his mom's sudden death when he was 13, his dad's sudden death when he was 19. And so in some ways that paralleled me losing my parents at eight and 25. And yeah, so at that point, I joined Ancestry.com. And I'm lucky that I have an unusual last name. And so I was Mm -hmm. able to find his father, my grandfather. And the only picture I've ever seen of his parents, my paternal grandparents were on a passport photo found on Ancestry.com. And so I was able to piece together some of his history through talking to a few of his childhood friends who are still alive and Ancestry.com and the dates. And that's when I found out where my grandfather was born in Shtetl, a Jewish ghetto in Latvia. And my sister and I actually went on a pilgrimage to go there to visit to try to find where he'd been born before I moved to the U.S. in 2010. So, yeah, I'm really grateful to those sites. And it was also, I did find a cousin through that. My father's estranged brother had one daughter and I'd known of her, but didn't know her name. And in the dad box, I found a picture of her with her name. And Mm. I was actually able to locate her and email her and start a little bit of a dialogue with her so there again the novel isn't to me autobiographical but a lot of my journey definitely colored sarah's for sure like her discovery of the dad box her journey on ancestry.com of course and there's something so surreal and personal about discovering your own deceased relative in your own sort of ancestral journey through what you discover of this deceased person afterwards. One of the things that really touched me when I read your essay about the dad box was your father's descriptions of San Francisco. And of course, Mm -hmm. I'm from San Francisco as a you. This is why it's so personal. (laughs) I love the way he describes, you know, the winding vistas and, you know, the views that you get. And Things that really touch home. And here you are, you're a holistic healer. You came to the Bay Area to study Chinese medicine, but you could have done that elsewhere. And I wonder, was that also part of your following his footsteps in a way to the Bay Area? Love that question. Not consciously. I really, Mm. it was a period of a few years when I was living in Italy and then doing the work in Nepal. And I had started studying Chinese medicine in Italy. And every time 
I was interested in something. I found an acupressure book and I looked where the acupressure institute was and it was in Berkeley. And I was mm. really interested <laughs> in hospice work, discovered about the Zen Hospice Center and that was in San Francisco. And it happened like seven times. And so eventually I was just like, okay, I'm listening. Something is guiding me to go to San Francisco in the Bay Area. So it wasn't conscious, but I was really moved when I read his descriptions of San Francisco from 1948. And when I went to the Bay Area to think about moving there before I did in 2010, it was 2008. Mm. So it was exactly six years later. And that was actually when I went to the places he described in his journal and it really hit me and he did talk about dreams. And so I think I was, I mean, the fact that he loved it so much moved me and just was one more validation of, oh yes, this is where of course. I meant to be. I mentioned this because Sarah also returns to Berkeley mm -hmm. and You are going to read us an excerpt now from the book, from The Unbroken Horizon, about Sarah's discovery of her dad box and what she found there. But before you do, can you remind us once again as to where we can find the book, yes. where it's available, your website, anything, your social media handles, anything you would like to give us to bring us to your work? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. So it is coming out on August 15th, which I think is actually today. That's the anniversary of my dad's death. So one of the things that I learned when I was going through my father's journals was the significance of my birthday and my sister's birthday in his life. And they were dates that were traumatic events in his life. So it felt like he was transmuting his trauma or his soul was by giving birth to us on those days, December 7th, which is Pearl Harbor Day for me, and then the day of his dad's death for my sister. And so part of what I'm wanting to do in birthing my book on the day of his death is transmute the trauma of his death and also bring his dreams to life because it was his dream to be a writer and he didn't quite make it. So yeah, that's just why this date is so significant to me. And the book is available on Amazon and it's available in ebook, in paperback and hardback, and also on Barnes and Noble. And my website is jennybrav.com. My Twitter handle is brav underscore Jenny and Jenny Brav writer on Instagram. And we will have the links to all of those in the show notes below. Jenny, thank you so much for being a guest on the True Fiction Project. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I cannot wait to listen to this next excerpt. This is the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora.
The next morning, I woke up early with a sense of bubbling anticipation. What if I found some of the dad puzzle pieces that had been missing from my life? I decided to skip my morning meditation, yoga, and run and tiptoed up the stairs to avoid waking my mother on a Saturday morning. The attic was big. A few rays of dawn sunlight filtered in through the tiny rooftop window and along with a weak, naked light bulb shed enough light to start exploring. I recognized some furniture from our house in DC, an old rocking chair that, as I realized, had been in my mother's family for generations. A sturdy antique table that was probably worth some money was gathering cobwebs in the far corner. I had to rummage around before I saw the boxes huddled in a corner with Saul's things written on top in my mother's neat clinical handwriting. There were a few boxes of differing sizes, but one of them had the sublabel of articles, research, letters, etc. The writing was hard to decipher in this light, so I decided to take the box down to my room, stopping to get a rag to dust off the layer of grime covering it. Settled cross-legged on my area rug, I peeled off the tape that was yellowed with age and barely sticking to the cardboard anymore. It had been 22 years. I realized to my astonishment. My mother must have packed his things before we'd left for Paris, right after my father's death, and not one to dwell on the past, as she said, had probably never opened them again. I hesitated for a second before opening the box, a ripple of fear laced with hope and longing coursing through my body. Even with those retrieved during my therapy sessions with Patrick, my memories of my father were few and far between. Those that remained were a child's memories, frozen in time and stale from having been recycled over and over again. I had never known my father as a man, as a person in his own right. In light of my conversation with my mother, I wondered at all the things I didn't know about him, his interests, his dreams, who he had been before he became a father or a lawyer for that matter. Slowly, I reached over to unhook one flap from the other. The cardboard was soft from age and multiple handlings. Reverently, I began unpacking its contents. There were several manila envelopes labeled college essays, which I set aside to peruse later. Then I found them. Several thick folders labeled anti-lynching bill. Next to them was a withered shoebox with the label Letters from Family et al. My hand wavered between the folders and the box, wondering whether to start with the academic or the personal. Finally, I landed on the folders, fingers shaking as though I discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and they might disintegrate in my hands if I made a wrong move. I took the contents out ever so delicately. A single page fluttered down, detached from all the other stapled or paperclip pages. The writing was hard to decipher in this light, so I decided to take the box to my room. Upon closer scrutiny, the page looked like the Xerox copy of a list of handwritten names. Men and women who died at Auschwitz was faintly legible above the names. One name was underlined. Isaac Baum, born March 12, 1905, died August 1942. I stopped, 
stunned, scanning my memory for a record of that name. Nasha threatened to overtake me once more. I slowly sipped my green tea until I'd regained my composure and could look at the paper again. Isaac. Isaac? I hadn't known many people on my father's side. He had an older sister he was fairly close to, but I hadn't seen my aunt since my father's death. I made a mental note to ask my mother about her. My grandmother had died of cancer when I was five or six. From the little I could recall, she had a thick Polish accent and long, dark hair she pulled back in a bun. Babsha Valda, I called her. I liked her a lot better than Grandma Bell. Beneath her strictness was a warm heart, I could tell even at that age. And she made the best apple strudel. I looked at the date of death. Was Isaac a great uncle? My grandfather? I racked my brain for more information. I knew my father's father had died when my dad was a baby. Back in Poland, I thought I remembered my father saying, what else? From a vague distant part of my brain came the recollection that when his wife and kids fled to the United States at the onset of World War II, he'd had to stay behind. But nobody ever mentioned anything about Auschwitz. I turned the page over and in my father's handwriting were the words, never forget. This is why you do this work. Never forget what? And why was it inserted into his research on the anti-lynching bill? I sighed, noticing that a headache had begun to grip the side of my head with the effort of trying to dredge up fragments of family history from the little I'd ever known in the first place. Not sure where to go from here, having wrenched every last bit of information I could from my own mind. I opened the various folders, rummaging until I found Dad's article, the anti-lynching bill, why it failed, and the Civil Rights Act succeeded by Saul Baum. Seeing his name in print stirred something in my heart, as though a little part of him had been brought back from the dead and was here with me. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Truefiction Project.